Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness. How greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and discernment, that you may approve the things which are excellent, that you, may be, that you may be sincere without offense to the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the, def- for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. You may be seated. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I... The Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. I pray now, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us with your word open before us. Call us to attention. This is your word. You are speaking, and may we as your servants, may we this morning have ears to hear what you have to say. Help us see our need for you, see that we crave your word in us, remove the garbage that comes before our eyes each day. The psalmist says, turn our eyes away from worthless things. Help us Then, Lord, set our affections on things that will last. Teach us today about prayer. Show us your power that comes through prayer. Grant the desire for more of you in our lives. And we ask that your spirit this morning would align our hearts, hearts that are, as the hymn writer says, prone to wander. Align our hearts and renew our minds in accordance to your truth. Draw our attention to prayer and grow us up in the faith. Move us from lethargy and slumber. Awaken in us an urgency about the nearness of our salvation. See that we are ready for the return of your son, Jesus. Do whatever is necessary to prepare us for that day. And let us be about the necessary work of prayer in the meantime. Bearing fruit for your glory. In this I pray. Amen. I have a question I'd like to begin with this morning. The question is this. What is it, church, that you pray to God for most often on behalf of others? What is it that you pray for to God most often, on behalf of others. As you spend time in prayer for other people, 
How would you describe the content of your prayers for them? As I was thinking about what gets prayed for here in the body on a Sunday morning, I came up with this list. I just put it in a a list of five items. The first one is a prayer of blessings. It's a prayer that would simply say, thank you, Lord. Uh, The second one was sickness, illness, uh, health, uh, under the banner of a Lord, please heal. The third one might be uh, relational in nature. Maybe there's some conflict in relationships. And so, Lord, please restore. A fourth one, salvation. Lord, please rescue so-and-so from the domain of darkness and transfer them into the kingdom of the Son of your love. And one other one that tends to be heard on a Sunday morning has in mind a direction in life. Lord, Lord, please provide wisdom. And these are good things to pray. And, and pray that we keep on praying for some of these things. But as I read the text this week, it dawned on me that prayer for the body is lacking. It's lacking. Can I say that? It's lacking. Prayers I've discovered here in 9, 10, and 11 of Philippians 1. This kind of prayer is hardly, if ever, touched on. And I'm not so much throwing a dart or pointing a finger at Hope in Christ Church. I I don't know that this is something that churches do very well in general. Praying this kind of prayer in 9, 10, and 11. How often are we praying the church to grow up, to mature in the faith, to be strengthened through the power of the word, to be sanctified, set apart unto the Lord himself? Do we pray this way? If we're honest, the most common prayer we pray is one about ourselves. When we have times of prayer, is there a consistent emphasis upon me and my family or us, each other, in the body. Again, not saying anything wrong and the Lord would want us to be lifting up our prayers and petitions to Him. I'm merely pointing out an emphasis in our prayer time. When we pray, are we petitioning for self or on behalf of others most often? Beyond the content of our prayers, I'd like you to consider what is it that you think about prayer? Is this something that we enter into merely as a duty? I know I'm supposed to do it, therefore I'm going to pray. Do you come before the throne of God, church, to primarily satisfy your own needs or to spend time with the God whom you love? There's a difference. Is there a thirst welling up in you? That thirst, by the way, comes compliments of the Holy Spirit operating in you. Is there a thirst welling up in you to commune with God? I love how the psalmist begins this in Psalm 63, verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. There's three things you see here in this first verse of Psalm 63. There's urgency. Early I seek you. This can't wait. Can't be pushed aside right now. There's clarity. You are my God. I I seek you. I'm not seeking water. I'm seeking you. And there's intensity in this. There's this longing for God in a desperate wilderness situation. You track Paul's prayers in the scripture and you notice something markedly different. Writer says that the primary focus of Paul's prayers was on the spiritual welfare of others. It's true. The spiritual welfare of others. 
When he's writing to these other churches and individuals, Paul is intentional about the interior. He's, his prayers focus on what David says in the psalm, the inward parts. His attention is given to the ongoing work of the believer. That he may walk faithfully with the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, 28 and 29 gives us, really in many ways, one of the big purposes of Paul and his preaching and why he was preaching. Why he's doing what he's doing. Christ we preach, he says. Warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect or mature in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, he says, striving according to his working which works in me mightily. So preaching and teaching and laboring to present every one of them in Colossae perfect in Christ Jesus. But I want you to note something here. Paul's labor in the Lord goes beyond preaching and teaching. It's the prayer itself. It's the prayer itself that serves as the catalyst to the preaching and the teaching and the healing and any other ministry work that Paul did. Prayer lays the foundation. It's the groundwork for the harvest of souls that still need Jesus Christ, friends. Paul's heart was to present every man mature in Christ. John MacArthur writes, there's no truer indicator of a Christian's level of spiritual maturity than his prayer life. So I would ask, how's your prayer life? Paul, in the text before us, is praying for the church at Philippi. He loves this church. This church has partnered with him in the gospel and loved him. They've been receptive to the truth of the gospel. And Paul's heart toward them, we heard last week, is warm and affectionate with a longing of Christ Jesus himself. He's remembering the ways in which they've served him and sought the Lord while he was among them. And as a closure to the greeting, the opening portion of this book, verses 1 through 11, these last three verses of the greeting, Paul is praying specifically for this church. He prays for their sanctification, their set-apartness unto the Lord. He prays for their growth in the Lord. But most of all, he prays that this church will glorify God with their lives. He's praying to influence them toward things of Christ. He's praying to encourage them in the faith, to help them remember they're facing a task unfinished. And there's much work to do for the sake of the gospel. In these three verses, Paul is exhibiting for the church what one writer calls an irrefutable proof of God-dependency. In other words, a life of prayer is proof of one's dependence upon God. You know, we come up with all kinds of methods and solutions and quick fixes for how to help one another, don't we? We're pretty good at that. Some of us are the fix-it kind of people. We, like, we hear something and we immediately think, fix it, fix it, fix it. And all the while, while we're coming up with our best ideas, our best solutions, there's prayer. And like the dusty book that sits on the shelf in the back row, it's waiting to be accessed. Ralph Martin in his book, on Philippians, he writes, he says, Christians, it seems, are slow to learn this valuable lesson. The most effective way to influence another is to pray for that person. You want to influence someone for the kingdom of God? Pray. Want to be a change agent on behalf of others in God's kingdom? pray. How many of you know that God is able? Right? We, we see it a few times, don't we, in the scripture. God is able. Pray. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. 
Those are the admonitions from Christ himself. Look at the text, verse 9. And this I pray, and this I pray. This introduces the prayer itself. And you know, as I wonder, as we push pause for just a moment, I wonder as I read this particular line of verse 9, are we turned off by what's coming? The text clues us in on what's coming in these next few verses. A prayer. A prayer specifically for the church at Philippi. And as a reader, I'd like to ask you a pointed question. Are you desiring to read on knowing that what follows is a prayer? Is there any thought of skipping the next few verses because you have advanced notice that what's coming is a prayer? Let me ask another question. Does prayer... Or prayers in general in the Bible, does it fall somewhere alongside or slightly underneath the genealogies in your mind? Prayer? If the text read, and this I say, or and this I preach, or and this I do, and this I teach, somehow it's more palatable to read that than, and this I pray. The text then begs a question this morning of all of us. What's your response to prayer? What's your response to it? That's an important question for us to settle in our minds. It seems that many are anxious to know what our friends are saying on the latest social media. And yet we find there's hardly any signs of life when God has something to say. We become curious when we read headlines and we click the link to read more. But very little curiosity, it seems, when we come to the Word of God. Little desire to read all about what God has to say. To study and investigate a little bit further into what God has to say. Some of us may be drawn to the reporter who stands in the hurricane force winds. Not so much so that we can hear them reporting the latest news. But truth be told, we're watching to see if they're going to get blown away by the wind. Are they going to be able to stand there? Are they? Really? Listen. We have before us in this book of Philippians a reporter of a different kind. And and what we have here in this letter in particular is a report from a man of God in prison. Paul is in chains as he writes and he has a word for the church of Philippi and for us. And this word that he has is going to transform any and surpass any news media outlet report of our day. Unlike what describes most of the news today, bad. We have here in this book the ultimate good news. This is good news. And this I pray. Out of all the people in the Bible, Paul is one of those folks who's experienced a fair amount of trials, wouldn't you say? He's called by God, chosen to carry out his good work to the Gentiles, travels around the Mediterranean, preaches the gospel regardless the cost, thus his stay in prison as we read Philippians You know, really, out of all of the, the people in the scriptures, I was, I was thinking of Old Testament people. I was thinking of Abraham, Moses, and David. And in New Testament, I was thinking, you know, outside of Christ, of course, I was thinking Paul, and thinking of Peter, and thinking of John. I mean, those three guys alone wrote the majority of the New Testament. And this, I pray. Paul's got something to say to us as he's moved by the Spirit to speak and to let us in on what he's praying. 
And by the way, this doesn't just come out of the blue. Remember last week in, in verses three and four, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy. And so here we have, in verses 9, 10, and 11, we have the what and how of his prayer. What's his content of his prayer for the church? And how does he specifically pray for the church? I I want you to see a natural progression in this prayer for the church. If you notice, it goes somewhere. It's not stagnant. It's not dry. It's not filled with cliches. It's like this finely tuned piece of music. This, this prayer has a certain flow and movement to it. It's a prayer that progresses to what I just titled our message here this morning, One Glorious Crescendo. I think that's what it is. In verses 9, 10, and 11, it builds and it builds and it builds to one ultimate aim. It's a prayer to God That targets the heart of the church. Targets her her growth, her development in Christ Jesus. So really that's the big idea here this morning. This is a prayer progression for the spiritual maturity of Christ's church. A prayer progression. It's going to move. It's going to connect. The parts are going to connect. We're going to keep building, ramping this up, crescendoing. For the church's spiritual maturity. So what are the movements of Paul's prayer here in verses 9, 10, and 11? How does this prayer progress and where does it lead to in the end? Okay, those are the questions we'll be dealing with. First thing I want us to see, Paul first prays for. He prays for their love. I'm going to abbreviate up here. But he prays for their love to abound. He prays for their love to abound. That's the first part here in, in verse 9. Look with me. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. Notice he's praying for their love. This is agape love. This is the love poured out in their hearts by the Holy Spirit. Romans 5 verse 5 kind of love. This love. This is, this is the love that's much different than that of the world. We see in the Bible that God is love, right? 1 John 4, 8 and 16. We see that God's love is sacrificial love and that it pours itself out on behalf of the object loved. John three sixteen. For God so loved, he so loved the world. What did he do, church? He gave his only begotten son, right? Biblical love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion Carried out on behalf of its object. The church at Philippi has experienced this love of God. And Paul prays that their love would abound still more and more. Now there's this certain progression even in the word abound. It has in mind this continual overflowing. Exceeding a a fixed number or a measure. Notice in the text that this love that he prays for has no object. Did you notice that? He's praying for their love, but he really doesn't apply an object to the love. It's not specifically mentioned whether this is a love toward one another in the body, a love toward the lost, a love toward God. So since there's no stated object to this love, we might assume as the reader that the love that's being prayed for, for the church, is to manifest itself in all directions. Paul is praying that the love this church has expressed, notice that it's already evident. This I pray that your love may abound still more and more. Their love has been evident. But he's praying that it would continue, that it would abound, that it would overflow more and more. It's this whole idea of uh, love for God. You think about love for God and love for people. Love God, love people. That's the long and short of the message of Scripture. Love God, love people. It's also something Paul would have known very well, the Ten Commandments. 
The first four speak of that vertical relationship of our love for God. And the, the remaining six speak of our, our horizontal relationship with people. Notice, too, that this love that's being prayed for, it sits in the context of two things. Very important. Knowledge and all discernment. Knowledge and all discernment. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. This love has guardrails, right? It's abounding and it's overflowing, yet it's a love that sits in a harmonious context of knowledge and discernment. This is not some anything goes kind of love. It's not a whimsical kind of love. Not a love driven by your emotions. That's this kind of love. It's not what he's talking about. The prayer is for the love of the church to abound within the scope of knowledge on the one end. Knowledge. That's full knowledge. That's personal knowledge. This is the kind of knowledge that entails a growing relationship with God who dispensed his love upon them. A knowledge that comes by way of God's word. One writer says, the more we know of God, the more reason we will have to love him. In this prayer progression, Paul is intentional about praying for the church's knowledge. Listen, he does so in in several of his other letters. I'll give you a couple examples. In Ephesians 1, verse 17... Says He's praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. In Colossians chapter 1, 9 and 10, I love this. He says, we do not cease to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Filled with the knowledge of his will. He goes on. That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. The church at Philippi, remember, is a relatively young congregation. Probably around 10 years old by the time Paul is writing. Young church filled with new converts. Knowledge of God is found in God's word. And praying for this love to abound in the context of knowledge would have been very helpful. This is a church that really needed it. In fact, every church needs this prayer as well. Do you realize that in our lifetime, we would never exhaust our knowledge of God? There's never going to be a day when we come to the point where, I already know that one. No. It's also exciting. It's also encouraging to think that there's always something here that the Lord would give and reveal to us through his spirit about the knowledge of God. And what the church needs, by the way, is A knowledge that comes only by way of the word of God. A a love for God, listen, leads to a love for God's word. Some folks uh, have have some hard time with this because I think they're trying to figure out why is it I have such a hard time consistently reading the Bible. And, And they come up with a lot of excuses, truth be told. But we've got to understand the starting point for loving his word is loving him. If you don't love him, you're probably not going to love his word. Sort of like if you don't love God, you're probably not going to have great love for his people. If you don't have a great love for God, you're probably not going to have a great love for the world who are lost. Because God has a heart, remember? He came to seek, Jesus said, he came to seek and save the lost. This all begins with a love for God, and that's what Paul's praying for. Ken Hughes says, a superficial love for God is a sure sign of a superficial knowledge of God. Perhaps we set our own boundaries here on attaining knowledge of God. Remember, there's a correlation in the scriptures between our knowledge of God and his word and our obedience to him, right? You know, the one, 1 John says, uh, I believe it's in chapter 2, he's talking about the one who says, yeah, I know him but doesn't do his word. Says he's a, he's a liar. Truth's not in him. May it not be said of us that we are, as one writer said, content with spiritual knowledge if 
It does not make too many demands on the level of our obedience. Is that true of us? That, that we, set, we set our own boundaries and perimeters on how much knowledge, when it gets to be a certain level, that's going to require a certain increased level of my obedience now. Am I willing to go there? If you're not, that's, that's severely going to handicap your knowledge of God, church. Are you growing in your love toward God? Are you advancing in your knowledge of God? Do you desire to know God at a greater level? Are you still an infant when it comes to your knowledge of God and his word? Now listen, if you are an infant in Christ, nothing wrong with infantile knowledge. Okay? But if you are in Christ and have been for some time now in Christ, it's time to start feasting on the meat that's provided for you in God's word. And the Bible is very clear about this. Hebrews 5 speaks to this. 12 to 14, for though by this time you ought to be what? You ought to be teachers, Hebrew writer says. You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, mature. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Paul prays that the church's love would abound still more and more in knowledge, but also in all discernment, right? All discernment. This is the ability to make proper moral decisions in the midst of a vast array of differing and difficult choices. This is... uh, Labeled insight or or perception. The King James puts judgment down here. Refers to a high level of biblical, theological, moral, spiritual perception. It also implies the right application of such knowledge. Ken Hughes says that this discernment is insight that informs our conduct. Insight that informs our conduct. At its core, Paul's prayer targets the love of the church. Love, as we know from the Bible, covers a multitude of sin. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love bears all things. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love never fails, right? We read of faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is what? Love. It's sort of like the peak of the virtues, if you will. Love. And he's praying for this love for the church. Love that is closely connected to and dependent upon the knowledge of God in them. Love that has learned the capacity to discern both what is right, what is true, and how one then might go about applying that wisdom. Discernment is critical for the choices that confront you on a regular basis. Discernment is necessary in the world that we live in. There seems to be a shortage of discernment being put on display in our world today. We don't have time to go there. But if you've kept up with any news this week in particular, you probably know what I'm talking about. Discernment seems to be in a a shortage. No discernment. You'll find yourself dabbling, swimming, partnering, perhaps even delighting, in the worldly fare that's being offered to you on a regular basis. When knowledge and discernment become the guardrails of your love, you begin establishing parameters for what is right, what is true, what is noble, the things that Paul's going to talk about here in Philippians 4.8, the things that we ought to be thinking about. This is what he's praying for, for the church. How many have been deceived in the church because they have little or no knowledge of God and his word? It's like Paul says in Ephesians, these babes, they've become lifers, infant lifers. You know, tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of man and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. How many get distracted and fall behind in the journey with Christ because they lack discernment, that ability to choose God's way over the world's way? Are we praying the words of the psalmist in Psalm 25? 
This has been a verse, a couple verses we've been as a family looking at this week. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Are we asking of him to show us, to teach us, to lead us? So Paul prays first that their love may abound. But I want you to see the progression here in the text. Look at the first part of verse 10. So that you may approve the things that are excellent. Paul's praying for their love to abound, but he's also praying for their approval of excellent things. Their approval of excellent things. The word approval has in mind the act of testing someone or something for the purpose of approving it. The word refers to the ability of the saints to to sift out and to test a certain thing and thus to recognize its worth and then put their stamp of approval on it. You might remember in Luke chapter 12, verse 56, this pharisaical group was pretty skilled, it seems, at approving or analyzing the sky, being able to tell whether it was going to rain, whether we are going to have a storm. But the same group of folks seemed to have a hard time approving and analyzing the coming of the Messiah who was standing in their midst. The result of growing in your love for God and His Word growing in your knowledge and discernment faculties, the result is having the ability then to, to pass the test. How many of you here like to pass the test? You know, listen, there are some of you who just simply like to pass the test. Pass, give me a P, pass. And there are others of you who like to pass A. Oh, you're not happy unless it's A. But we all like to pass the test. The ability to pass the test of knowing what is most important. Listen, practically speaking, your decision-making ability will shoot off the charts. And they'll improve tremendously when you are growing and maturing in Christ, when you are listening for His voice in the word of truth. I love the line at the end of that chorus. Out of all the voices calling out to me, I will choose to listen and believe the voice of truth. Right? There are a lot of voices, aren't there? Which one are you going to listen to? How many of you in here desire to make right choices in your life? Anybody? Good. I was hoping we'd see some hands on that one. How many of you are confronted right now with decisions that weigh heavily on your mind. Yeah. You need to be sure you're hearing the voice of truth. The word excellent here in the text, that you may prove the things that are excellent. That word excellent has in mind things that are superior, things that are vital, things that surpass, things that excel. Love the NIV's rendering of this. That you may be able to discern what is best. What is best? The Holman Christian Standard says so that you can determine what really matters. (laughs) And even the footnote in the uh, uh, New American Standard, I I like the footnote there. It says so that you can distinguish between the things that differ. Those are all good. Those are all appropriate for what we're talking about. The call here in the prayer of Paul is that the church would not just be able to approve right from wrong, listen, but best from second best. Oh, that's a little harder. Many of us probably do fairly well at right, wrong. But it gets a little more difficult when we start 
tunneling down to what's best in God's eyes versus something that may not be best. This kind of love that abounds within the context of knowledge and discernment results in being able to approve the things that are excellent to discern what really matters in light of eternity. What matters in light of eternity? To determine what really counts in God's eyes from God's perspective? Paul's not done at this point. The progression continues. Acquiring this kind of love, approving the things that matter to God, this has a, listen, has a preparatory purpose behind it. Look at the text, the last part of verse 10. That you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. We might read that in order that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. And here Paul is praying for their readiness Readiness for Christ's return. He's praying for their readiness for Christ's return. Love the song, old southern gospel song, cathedrals sing it. There's heavenly preparations for a wedding celebration. Is that wedding music that I hear? It's talking about that day to come. The church. Paul is praying for the church. That they see meaning behind their living here on earth. Paul's prayer is targeting the heart and he's calling the church to live lives of sincerity. Genuineness. Lives that are pure in heart, in mind. Pure in conduct. Romans 12, 9 Paul says, let love be without hypocrisy, right? What's the opposite of hypocrisy? It's genuineness. Transparency. What people see is who you really are. The word carries the ideas of cohesiveness or or oneness or unity. Paul is praying that the church's days would be spent preparing for the return of Christ. In fact, he says in Philippians 3, verse 20, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. He says in chapter 3, verse 13, we see Paul's life is characterized by reaching forward to those things which are ahead. John writes in his first epistle in chapter 3, verse 3, he says, everyone who has this hope in him, what's that hope? It's the hope of Christ coming back. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Abounding in love that's coupled with knowledge and discernment results in being able to approve the things that are excellent, the vital and eternally significant things. And the hope is that the church is about preparing herself for that wedding day to come. Paul prays that she's sincere, that she's genuine in all things, that she's practicing purity as she waits in hope. But Paul also prays that the church is without offense. That has in mind, it speaks to both our own stumbling in sin, but also that of causing others to sin. Corinthians 10, verse 32, Paul says, Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Give no offense. Romans 14, 21, Paul says, It's neither good to eat meat or drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended, or is made weak. And I love this verse in Acts 24. Perhaps this would be a good verse to, to memorize, put in the memory banks. Acts 24, 16. This is Paul in his defense before Felix. He says, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Pretty lofty goal. Sincere and without offense, the text says in Philippians 1, notice it says, till the day of Christ. Till the day 
of Christ. Sinclair Ferguson writes, he says, Paul's concern is that their lives should be fit for the scrutiny of Jesus Christ when he returns as Lord and Judge. Do we pray this way? That, that, that others in the body, that their lives would be fit for the scrutiny of Jesus Christ when he comes back as Lord and Judge. Notice in this prayer, there's a degree of persevering on behalf of the church until the day of Christ. Sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. There's also a goal toward which the church is working. The day of Christ is coming. There's also a hope the church is called to in this prayer. The day of Christ. He's coming. In fact, the psalmist says in 96.13, He's coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with His truth. Church, are you ready for the return of Jesus? Years ago, there was a song that got played a lot and a lot, a lot. People get ready. Jesus is coming to take from the world his own. People get ready. Jesus is coming. Soon we'll be going home. Are you ready? Paul's praying for the church's readiness for the return of Christ. Are you making heavenly preparations even now for that wedding celebration to come with Jesus? Do you pray for the parts of the body in this way? Do you pray at all with a view to the day of Christ? Well, Paul concludes his prayer for the church in verse 11. The glorious crescendo comes to a feverish pitch right here in this last verse. The final progression of his prayer. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. So he's praying for the church for what I'll call their fruitful longevity. Fruitful longevity. Praying that the church will bear fruit. The text says in the New King James, being filled. The New American Standard and others perhaps have having been filled. Uh, just a, a, a little brief grammar lesson because this verse is sometimes confused and sometimes puzzling to, to grasp. What does it mean? What's he trying to say here? Being filled with the fruits of righteousness. What's that all about? Well, the idea here is in that it is in the perfect tense, which long and short of that means this. The perfect tense has in mind something that happened in the past, but still has results right now in the present. Okay? So this verse is rendered in a few different ways. Let me give you a couple ways this is rendered. The New King James has it being filled with the fruits, plural, of righteousness. This particular rendering has in mind and captures the present tense result of the filling, right? It renders the word fruits, plural, speaking to the evidence of righteous living. Fruits, the fruits, bearing fruits. You know, it's like what Jesus says about the false prophet. You're going to know him by, you recognize him by his fruits, by the evidence. There's evidence, okay? So, so this particular rendering, the New King James is really sided with the fruits end of the evidence of this being filled with righteousness. But there is also in the New American this having been filled with the fruit, singular, of righteousness. And, and here, this particular translation is capturing the past tense of the filling when it started. And it renders the word fruit, singular, of righteousness, Speaking to the righteousness that comes by faith, of which Paul will get to in chapter 3, verse 9. This righteousness which comes by faith. Now, one of these renderings speaks to the sanctification. speaks to the ongoing, present tense, fruit-bearing of the believer. And the other translation speaks to, 
and really gets at the justification, which is pointing to the past event of having possessed Christ's righteousness. Both of those translations are aimed in different directions, but I want you to understand something, church. They complement one another. They complement one another. They fit nicely together. For the church of Jesus Christ must be justified, right, through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. And at the same time, the church is called to be sanctified, to be set apart to Jesus for good works. I believe the context in Philippians 1, as Paul is praying, leans toward emphasizing the fruits of righteousness. Now, Paul is talking about here the evidence of the church at Philippi. And he's praying for the church to manifest themselves with this evidence of fruit. He's not necessarily praying to convince the church of their need for a savior, but to encourage them in the faith, to call them onward to spiritual maturity. The prayer is intended for the church, those already in Christ, those already having been justified. Okay? I know it's a little, maybe a little fuzzy there, but I feel like I needed to do a little dive in there for you to help understand what the verse is saying. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness then, maybe the big million dollar question that you have is what does that entail? What's that look like? Let me give you a few markers of bearing fruit as a follower of Jesus. Here's the first one, abiding in Christ. Abiding in Christ. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness. Here's marker number one. John 15, verses 4 and 5 and verse 8. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, listen, bears much fruit. Without me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. And in verse 8, I had to put verse 8 on here because this is also very helpful. By this, my Father is what? Glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. Fruit bearing seems to be characteristic of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Abiding in Christ. Let me give you a second marker. Witnessing to the lost. Another marker of bearing fruit. Romans chapter 1 verse 13. Paul says, I I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often plan to come to you. That I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. Some fruit. Now, Colossians 1, 5 and 6, Paul is praying always for them because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, he says, of which you've heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it is also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth. Marker number two is bearing, uh, is witnessing to the loss. Here's another marker of bearing fruit. Being filled with his fruits of righteousness. What does that look like? What are some markers? Doing good works. That's number three. Doing good works. We know the passage in Galatians 5 that says, but the fruit of the Spirit is, right? Love, joy, peace. We know that list. That's, by the way, a list of evident fruit. I love what one writer says about this. He says, these divinely bestowed attitudes, talking about Galatians 5, these divinely bestowed attitudes are designed to produce divinely empowered good works. Ephesians 2 verse 10 would be another good place to go. Paul says there, we are God's workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're created for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk. The word there, walk, is to live in. We're to live in these and carry out these good works. It's a mark of being filled with righteousness. The fruits of righteousness. One more, I'll give you one more marker. And that is operating in godly wisdom. James 3.17, I love this list. But the wisdom that is from above is first of all pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and what? Good 
fruits. See, when we operate according to godly wisdom, that's a marker. It's a marker of fruit bearing. These fruits or evidences of righteous living are by Jesus Christ, Paul says here in in Philippians 1. They're by Jesus Christ. He's the one who makes such living possible. And the promised Holy Spirit gifted to us when we are rescued from darkness, when we've crossed over from death to life, he's the one working his power in us, enabling us to produce lives fit for the king. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 are evident outcomes of the Holy Spirit's work in us. Are you filled with the fruits or evidences of righteousness? Are you? Is this church filled with the fruits of righteousness? Paul's praying that the church would be filled in this way. Remember that seed that fell on the path, Mark chapter 4? There was a certain seed that fell on the hard path, certain seed that fell on stony path, didn't have a whole lot of depth to it. There was another part of the seed that fell amidst some thorns. There was no fruit production because the word was choked out. And it got me thinking about this connection and correlation between fruit bearing and word in me. And when I don't have the word in me, it's going to be hard to bear fruit. But, but perhaps this ought to be our, our prayer. Mark 4, verse 20. You know, some, some of the seed fell on good soil. Remember that? These are the ones, Jesus says, sown on good ground. Those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. In varying degrees, some 30-fold, some 60, some 100. But they're bearing fruit. They heard, they accepted, they received it. And they were bearing fruit. May our prayers target the fruitful longevity in the lives of the body of Christ. Well, lest we think for a moment that Paul ends with an emphasis upon man himself. The glorious crescendo resounds on this last note. Look at the end of verse 11. To the glory and praise of God. This is the ultimate aim. This is where it ends. The last part of verse 11. To the glory and praise of God. Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever you do, Do all for the glory of God. Colossians 3.17 Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Listen, any good that comes from our lives, any fruits that get evidenced here on earth, to God be the glory, great things He has done. You know, I still remember years ago, there was an older gentleman who passed along uh, some great words of wisdom to me. And he was talking about, uh, in his pastoral role, how often people would come up to him and compliment him about something that was spoken during the morning message. And he said, I, I really wrestled with and, and tried to come up with a line to say in return. And, uh, and, and he said, it got to where I just uh, visually recognized what they were saying, but visually took it from me to him. And he said, to me, to God. That was his response. So when someone gave him some kind of praise, it's a great practice for all of us. Someone praises you for something. This, is, this life is not about you. It's to me, to God. To me, to God. We're going to be giving it right back to God, to the one who deserves it. To God be the glory and praise. God makes believers fruitful, one writer says, for the sake of his glory. 
He makes us fruitful for the sake of His glory. Jerry Sumney, in his book on Philippians, he says, the goal of the church being filled and being without offense is not ultimately that she receives salvation, but rather that God is recognized and praised for who God is. That's the ultimate aim. What is the chief end of man, church? Westminster Catechism, question number one. It's question one for a reason. We don't get this one right. We're sunk. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him. Paul's prayer ends with one glorious crescendo of praise to God and glory do His name. That's the reason we're here. All that gets done and accomplished for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, may it be to the glory and praise of God. Amen? Amen? There we go. Let's pray. Let's pray. Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples, give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due His name. Father, I pray that you would see we, your people, proclaim your good news of salvation from day to day. Help us, Lord, in your power to declare your glory among the nations, your wonder among this people. And may there be fruits and evidences of your righteousness working in us. Until the day of Christ, may that be so. And we ask that our prayers regularly sound forth in glorious crescendo, echoing praise and glory that's due your holy name. We pray in Christ. Amen.